This evening I thought I'd uh, talk a little bit about mindfulness, the, um, but uh, because it's, uh, it's a central feature to uh, the Buddhist teachings and uh, the majority of um, people in the West who are interested in Buddhism are interested in the element of uh, the meditation aspect and uh, the kind of mental development uh, and the, the development of mindfulness, the use of mindfulness is a, uh, a sort of a, a phrase that comes up over and over again and uh, But it's uh, usually expressed in a little, a little poly lesson for you. The uh, the word that's um, used for mindfulness is sati, and but it's actually rarely used. The word sati is actually rarely used in the scriptures the, when the Buddha thought about mindfulness, he rarely used sati on its own. It rarely stands alone in the, uh, in the Pali Canon. And uh, it's coupled with uh, another word called sampajanya. And uh, sampajanya means clear comprehension. Aha, the picture is getting bigger. <laughs> mindfulness and clear comprehension. Uh, so that Usually, when what we're talking about mindfulness, um, what the Buddha is referring to is mindfulness and clear comprehension as a complete uh, aspect. So that the sense of, because uh, usually what happens when we talk about mindfulness or what we assume is this, you know, attention on an object, uh, like trying to be mindful of the breath, or trying to be mindful of what we're doing. And, uh, and sometimes we can actually be very mindful, uh, but are we actually clearly comprehending anything? Uh, that's a good question. So that uh, this quality of, of clear comprehension is uh, is is a a necessary element. If there's going to be any wisdom or any reflective insight, uh, there has to be this quality of clear comprehension. And one of the images that you know, like. W- that I just like to use is usually when you know like just to how we focus on paying attention or being mindful of something and it's usually sort of sort of going down on an object or looking on an object and I think it's more important to sort of how do you know opening the sphere of awareness around something and holding things in awareness around that's a much, much nicer object, or another nice image. Um, the classic illustration that uh, uh, my teacher Ajahn Chah used to give uh, the difference between mindfulness and mindfulness with clear comprehension was a uh, a monk who was actually senior to Ajahn Chah who was a senior teacher and he used to come to Ajahn Chah's monastery to visit from time to time and and the way that the structure is set up for uh, um, in the monastic training that if somebody is uh, 
uh, senior to one, and they uh, they sit before you in the line, or they if you go walk for alms round, then they walk for alms round in in, in front, and it's a uh, it's a way that uh, it's just an easy way to structure things. Uh, but Ajahn Chah said, whenever this monk came, he was um, he was quite um, being mindful was a big thing in his life, and he was actually quite proud of the fact of how mindful he was. And uh, but Ajahn Chah, he was real pain in the neck to have around because of his mindfulness. Um, he said it would be going arms around and he'd be very mindful about how he was walking and very sort of composed and very fixed on what he was doing, focused on what he was doing. Um, but he wasn't really very clearly comprehending of actually where he was going so that uh, you'd be walking along behind him uh, on arms round and the, the lay people would be sitting there ready to put food in your, in your bowl and he wouldn't actually notice that the, the lay people were over there and he'd start walking off, following the road off in a different direction and sort of going out to the paddy fields or walking towards a buffalo pen or, and uh, Ajahn Chah would have to be behind him sort of, go right, go right <laughs> Um, and you need to be very fixed, and you need to have to check him. So that this sense of you can be very, you know, mindful and focused on what you're doing, but not really cl clearly comprehending of how it's related to anything else that you're doing. And that's you know, meditation has to be, uh, you know, how does it relate to what we're doing? How does it relate to? Uh, the circumstances that we're in. Uh, how does it relate to uh, the world around us, the people that we're in, the activities that we're engaged in? Uh, if it isn't doing that, then, you know, there's something lacking. Um, so that the this sense of, of mindfulness and uh, clear comprehension working together um, the uh, because if it's not it's it's not it's just not uh, applying uh, the principles of of dhamma in a very coherent way and there's a uh, circumstance in in uh, in England where one of the uh, lay supporters, he'd been going to the monastery for quite some time and uh, he'd go and and he was a very serious practitioner um, but he, and one time he came to the monastery rather distressed and, and uh, uh, asking for advice as to what to do because uh, he was practicing his mindfulness and practicing his meditation and his uh, creating uh, was creating problems for him and his family and his wife and children were getting very upset with him all the time and uh, and sort of asked them, well, what are you actually doing? And uh, and he goes into this de description of you know, trying to start his day mindfully and you know, mindfully pouring his milk in his cornflakes, mindfully lifting up the spoon, mind lifting. lifting. And of course, everybody else in the house is trying to get things done, and, he, and he's driving them crazy with his. Is, is sort of attempts at what he thinks is mindfulness. And again, not clear comprehension of, you know, how, is he, how do you fit in with what's going on around you? How do you, 
uh, clearly comprehend the situation and what needs to be done. And, uh, and it, was, it, was a, it was a sort of a shock to him because he was very sincerely trying to apply the, the, what he thought was the, the practice. Uh, but it's sort of very slow, very deliberate, very focused, very attentive, but again, just not smoothly harmonizing with the world and the circumstances and the people around him. So that practicing Dhamma, practicing meditation, uh, shouldn't make you too odd. <laughs> <laughs> It, uh, you should actually start to fit in a bit better with the, the world around one. Um, so that, because there is this sense of okay, say, the openness, what are the, re uh, what are the results of one's actions? What are the implications of one's actions? How does one relate to the, the people around one? Um, one of the and the, the, say the circumstance, uh, the, the, the parameters of, of clear comprehension is clear comprehension of time and place. You know the actual circumstance, the place, the set, the people. Uh, uh, you know what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, uh, what's useful, what's not useful, uh, and being able to adjust, being able to adapt. Uh, that's one of the, uh, uh, say, one of the training, trainings in a monastery, um, and particularly how um, Ajahn Chah used to, to train people, would be shifting, not letting things get too settled into routines, uh, so that you had to learn how to adapt, and you'd, you'd change the routine. You'd have to get things done very quickly sometimes. You'd have to get things done slowly sometimes. You'd have to work together sometimes. You'd have to work on your own sometimes. So that there's a, a really learning how, this, how to apply the, the to mindfulness to different circumstances, to really recognize time and place. Um, because there's a, uh, that uh, thing. Uh, there's a certain longing for security and certainty in the in the human mind that uh, uh, you know, tends to sort of rigidify things or set things up in in uh, uh, in patterns which are are uh, one can be be sure of and. One of the things you couldn't be sure of at Ajahn Chah's monastery was what was actually going to happen next. It was, it was never quite a sure thing. Uh, you were like sometimes it's I, I, some some of that I can, I don't dare even introduce into the West. I mean, people go crazy. Uh, they can't deal with. Like sometimes, you know, starting a sitting and not actually knowing when it's going to stop. <laughs> well, it might last for 20 minutes, it might last for three hours. Uh, or starting chanting and not really knowing what actual chanting you're going to be doing. Uh, there, uh, so that, that uh, but that ability to just go with the flow and pay attention to, to how, you know, clearly comprehending what's appropriate, how to fit into a situation, how to, how to, how to deal with the, the, the circumstances that one's faced with in the moment, a very important part of mindfulness. And, and again, the sense of mindfulness, the clear comprehension is the element of, say, the reflective capacity working to in conjunction with, with mindfulness, the wisdom element. Because mindfulness isn't really complete without wisdom functioning. If it's just a... a uh, and, and it's interesting to, to pay attention to, say, like in the... Uh, kind of like the, 
the psychological analysis of mindfulness uh, in accordance with uh, what, uh, say, in the, uh, say, the, the five aggregates of being, a body, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. You know, where, 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 where does mindfulness lie within that? And mindfulness is a mental formation, a sankhara. And the distinguishing characteristic of a mental formation is the quality of intention or volition. And it isn't just a passive quality of awareness. There's an intentional volition, an intentional application of mind for it to be mindfulness. If it's it's sort of like a a passive awareness, there might be some sort of awareness there, but it's not really, the mindfulness is really, uh, it has to have a full intention. There has to be full awareness. There has to be this quality of the, the, the application. So that uh, this, this sense of to, for mindfulness to be uh, complete in terms of a Buddhist, from a Buddhist perspective, there is uh, this element of clear comprehension, wisdom, function. The time and place uh, is part of the sense of what clear comprehension revolves around. Um, Clear comprehension of one's own capabilities. Um, There's a... By uh, recognizing, say, what's appropriate for oneself, what's inappropriate for oneself, uh, what's within one's realm of of, uh, capability, what isn't. the uh, that's a very that plays a large part in clear comprehension because we uh, we can very easily come from a place of ideals of how we think we should be rather than clearly comprehending what's appropriate for us uh, what, what is what are we actually capable of doing um, uh, what and, and and not in a and not necessarily in a fixed way of so saying right in this moment what am I capable of? Maybe yesterday I was I was I could handle so much. And today really not that much. And so you know so you know that to to have that 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 clear comprehension, right? Because usually what happens is we again we come from an ideal of what we think we should or what we think we can, uh, and we're not really clearly comprehending what, what we're actually capable of, what's appropriate for us. Um, the, uh, uh, just in the realm of, of uh, I'm just, like in in sitting sitting meditation, you know what what is when do we when do we shift our posture and when do we sort of uh, grit our teeth and continue to make ourselves miserable <laughs> or when do we use it as a or even if it is say if it is uncomfortable how do we how do we clearly comprehend what is is what we're capable of in using it as a, a means of uh, furthering our, say, developing a patience or developing of skills of dealing with, with difficulty. And when do we set it aside? Uh, you know, those are really important issues because we tend so much to come from what we think we should do and how we should be. Um, and then we get frustrated and caught up because I can't do something or um, set up. The self-image is is getting in the way so much. 
So that clear comprehension is sort of going through that self-image and coming from a place of oh, what's appropriate, what's useful, what is. And this is where you know, really being grounded in, in uh, say, what's the purpose of the teachings? And the purpose is always sort of suffering and the suffering. You know, those you're using, you know, seeing, seeing suffering, and paying attention to where is the end of suffering, where is the cessation of suffering. So then, bringing it back to that that, that quality of practical uh, application and uh, the experiential rather than the ideal, the ideal or the, the, uh, the idealized form of what we sh- again, what we should be getting or should be becoming. Uh, there's an, uh, the last or uh, another aspect of clear comprehension is um, being able to clearly comprehend when one is deluded and when one isn't deluded. And that's much more difficult uh, because, of course, the function of delusion is to delude. And <laughs> it, it, uh, um, but also, that's where one, uh, you know, uses the, the the experiential level of paying attention to, you know, what what is, you know, am I creating more suffering, or am I inclining towards as an ending of suffering? Uh, so that by paying attention to that, say, on the experiential level, it cuts through the tendency to delusion. So that that clear comprehension of moment-to-moment experience uh, is just very helpful. And then using different tools to help support that. That's why... um, Um, say the beginning of the meditation I I talked about really paying attention to the body Uh, the body is very helpful for getting anchored uh, getting uh, awareness established which has a a parameter a, a a foundation, a, a measuring stick, uh, helps one to to get have some something solid to to measure with, so that the uh, this sense of uh, paying attention, uh, say again, has has a has a foundation, and you can start to see how we. Uh, tend to confusion or uh, lack of clarity or the mind drifting or the self-image coming up. Um, There's, uh, because this morning talking with, talking with Robert and, and Robert asking a, a very good question around, you know, how do you maintain mindfulness and awareness, say, when you're in conversation or engaging with, with, with the world around one? Because it's very easy to, uh, in, say, in speech and conversation and engaging with, with other people, you get drawn 
into the either the excitement of the conversation or the reaction that one's having or the uh, sort of the propping up of a, of a, of a self-image that one is working from or functioning from. And how do you see, and, and you, write, you, you maybe after you sort of see this, this is sort of you know, really, uh, you know, delusion functioning. And, and, uh, but how do you notice that? How do you recognize that when you're actually engaging in conversation? Uh, because it calls on the mind very, very strongly, very quickly. <coughs> and and I said, my response immediately is, well, you have to, using the, the body as, a, as the anchor. Because um, usually we use our mind as the anchor. And the mind is very, untru <coughs> very untrustworthy. Uh, it, uh, it just starts spinning out very quickly. And it's really important to come back into the, the body uh, when so engaging in conversation, engaging in, in, in interacting with people, that one come, comes back. And one thinks that, that you know, by, say, like by you know, paying attention closely to one's mental reactions and really focusing in on it, that it, it, it should produce some clarity. Um, it rarely does, <laughs> it, because again, you're sort of using the mind when the mind's starting to spin out. Using the mind to try to, it, it sort of piggybacks onto that and just keeps going. So it's helpful to come back into something that is settling. So that paying attention to the body, paying attention to the feeling of, uh, say, the just the breathing. Which isn't, you know, you don't, in the middle of a conversation, you don't close your eyes and sort of go into it. But, I mean, just shifting focus back into the body so that one's starting to become attentive and seeing, feeling what one's doing, being more present of sort of the whole picture. And that's where this sense of clear comprehension starts to come in. You sort of get a whole, getting to, trying to get a, a bigger picture of, of, of what mindfulness is, what engagement is, what, how we're reacting, uh, because it's personalized so quickly. I'm just sort of seeing, oh, that's a reaction. You can see it. you're feeling it in the body rather than having this, because um, usually what happens is this sort of, you know, the play-by-play -play commentary going on all the time. And it, uh, yes. <laughs> Is uh, it can be amusing sometimes, but not very helpful. <laughs> uh, so that uh, uh, you know, really coming back to the to the body. So this sen this sense of mindfulness and clear comprehension, seeing how how the uh, application of of, of mindfulness uh, is. Really, a, and, and this works both in terms of one's uh, engagement, engaging with the, the world around one, and also in the meditation. Uh, like it's it's really important not to spend enormous amount of time trying to fix the mind too much. The sense of mindfulness and clear comprehension, also in the meditation, starting to see how things, the trains of thought, the habits, the, the conditioning in the mind are, are functioning, are working, working, so that there's a, uh, an insight into letting go. Uh, uh, that it really fosters that in a, in a, in a natural way. So anyway, these are few thoughts, plant some seeds for reflection. I'll offer them this evening to you. If there's any questions, I'm happy to. Well, can you know, at the monastery, you know, like, at the end of the conversation about the monastery, 
And I was somehow thinking about that as you were talking and wondering what kind of clear comprehensions came from that, doing that, you know, there's the ideal of going on almost around to the community, but what kind of comprehensions came well, I mean, the, certainly it's something that we've been wanting to do um, as a you know, sort of planting the, the seeds of this monastic tradition in, in America. And part of it is um, we're sort of alms mendicants. And going into um, Ukiah, uh, it's uh, certainly not Northeast Thailand, uh, and going arms around. Um, I mean, there's whole sort of, oh, oh, whole realm. I mean, there's, it's a very good practice, both for the monastics as well as the lay people, um, and per particularly for us, I feel it's a, a really important way of, of uh, presenting the image of a, a religious seeker. And on that level, it's a gift. Uh, so it's a, it's a form of giving uh, for us to, to give the... Because you, you reflect back on the, uh, you know, what are the... Uh, what were the things that stimulated the Buddha to leave the palace and live the, live the life of, of spiritual practice. It was the sight of the, the old person, sick person, dead person, and a religious seeker. So that having the image of a religious seeker in a society is, is very important. Um, um, Western, most Western societies and cultures have been bereft of those images for some time. So it's a it's a it's a gift to bring that image back into the into the culture. Um, for ourselves, it's a real reminder of our vulnerability of being completely dependent on the generosity of other 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 people because you you go in to uh, uh, on, on alms round and you're not allowed to actually ask uh, you make yourself available to the generosity of other people and uh, and you make yourself available to uh, you know, both to tremendous, because some people, uh, the other day we went in, because we go once a week, and uh, on, on the observance days, the lunar observance days, and uh, uh, there was uh, a, uh, um, a car pulled over, could we walk down main, the main street, we'd walk up the main street, State Street, and then, uh, and then sort of loop around and come back. And this car pulled over, and uh, it was uh, a little girl, probably about 11 or 12, and her mother. And uh, they jumped out, and they were, they're from uh, City of 10,000 Buddhas. And uh, the the kind of joy on this little girl's face to, to see monks and, and then to put something in the bowl was, it was a real treat to see. Um, and, uh, and then they, and we continued, uh, they put, uh, 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 they didn't have anything in the car probably except leftover Halloween candy. <laughs> so we got sort of some of these little Hershey, little Hershey bars, and, and uh, some other sort of candy-type things, and 
and they were in the in, in our bowls. And it was funny. The next place we we went into uh, further up was a a, a bakery that uh, invites us to come in and and receive food. And the the the, uh, the woman in the bakery. I opened my my bowl and she was going to put this, and she looked in and said. Wow, that's not good for your teeth. <laughs> I said, well, we don't have much choice. We have to take what we can. <laughs> but we looped around, and then uh, that uh, this car pulled up again. It pulled up at a stoplight, and... Uh, the girl and the mother leaped out of the car again and uh, had some fruit and some buns and some drinks and whatnot and put them, put them in our bowl. Very, just really overjoyed to give. And there's, there's a couple cars backed up behind because she just stopped at a red light and got out and emptied the car. <laughs> just so excited to be able to put food in the bowl. It's a real treat to see that and to... to uh, you know, in the other uh, you know, spectrum, you know, the other end of the spectrum is you know, people sort of yelling abuse at you and and, uh, and whatnot, which uh, you know, you just have, you, the vulnerability draws you, all of that, and you're you just have to be ready to accept that. Um, although it's interesting that the uh, uh, there's, as we continue to go, uh, the the positive response is uh, uh, just far outweighs the, any negative response. Uh, so that that's that's quite lovely to see. Uh, some months ago, um, the local newspaper, I guess two or three months ago. The local newspaper did a, it was a front page article, big picture, and uh, uh, on uh, the monks going arms around in Ukiah, and it was very positive. And then several days later, there was a uh, uh, editorial, and they mentioned it, and sort of saying that they didn't didn't and couldn't put in all the letters which were virtually all a positive response uh, and it was interesting and they were commenting the editor was commenting how uh, you know that there was this positive response uh, to the article and uh, also that the say, good fortune of um, Ukiah, which is just a, a middle-sized town, or a, uh, and uh, to actually have two Buddhist monasteries, uh, a city of 10,000 Buddhists is, is there, and uh, the and they also made this uh, neat sort of little contrast of the. Uh, uh, at the time, I th it was about the time when that television program, Survivors, was winding up, and they're sort of saying how, how lovely it is to sort of see something, people who are willing to be content with little and rely on uh, generosity and live simply rather than this uh, tremendous desire to uh, get a million dollars or whatever. <laughs> uh, so it, uh, it, was a, it was a very positive uh, response in the local papers. Uh, so that, uh, and so you know, there's a whole range of, of uh, you know, reflections that come up in, in uh, like alms round. Uh, one of the things that I tend to do when I'm walking alms round is just to to chant the, the loving kindness sutra. Uh, that's just that's sort of that's what I'm doing. Is is rather than going out and looking for food, I'm 
I'm there gener- generating loving, loving kindness and giving people the opportunity, if they're interested in, in receiving loving kindness, <laughs> they can have it. <laughs> but uh, that, this is, that's what I see as my opportunity and something to, to do, to give. So that, uh, you know, that, and that sense of the, I, I say the reciprocal relationship between the, the monastic community and the lay community becomes very, very clear. And alms round is sort of the, the, uh, the very clear uh, example of that. Hmm. Yes, sir. And the Buddha mind. Um, there, I guess it's a bit difficult for me to. Uh, define or express um, in the sense that we uh, say in the Theravada tradition you, you usually don't use that phrase, say the Buddha mind um, it's a uh, uh, what one's looking at um, you know, well, how are you defining the Buddha mind or what are you thinking of in terms of the Buddha mind I mean, the heart of enlightenment, or the the, the Buddha as refuge, uh, is maybe one way to look at it. Um, certainly, when we do the uh, say the the recollection of the Buddha, you're paying attention to the qualities. You know, what are the qualities of the Buddha? Say, so like Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sammasambuddhassa. Um, those are referring to the qualities of um, wisdom, purity, compassion. Those are the sort of the essence of the, the heart of the Buddha, the mind, the enlightened mind. So that, say, mindfulness and clear comprehension should be inclining the heart towards those qualities of wisdom, compassion, purity. Uh, how do we incline the heart in that direction? How do we implement that? How do we live by the, that? How do we open the heart to, uh, say, allowing ourselves to uh, be in the presence of wisdom, compassion, and purity, you know, without getting in the way? Because so, it's not because that's I mean it's very important to recognize that we're not so much trying to make ourselves be wise and compassionate and pure, but we're trying to get out of the way so that we can allow that those qualities to manifest, which are the say the natural response to seeing things clearly, so that the mindfulness and clear comprehension is giving us the opportunity to see things clearly. And then the response uh, would, if, if, the, you know, if we're really seeing clearly, then the response would be say, the, the heart of the Buddha, wisdom, compassion, purity. Does that make sense? past the point of pain or get point, past the point of, of being fed up with meditation? <laughs> the second. The second, okay. 
Um, well, one was just sort of changing my idea of what I thought meditation was, was because I thought meditation was sitting, uh, and that I had to get this sort of sitting meditation down. So I shifted and started doing a lot of walking meditation and, and standing meditation. Um, so that, uh, that was very, very helpful. I mean, to, to realize that I, you know, I didn't have to sit with painful knees and, and a sore back, uh, uh, and I could still be meditating and developing mindfulness and clear comprehension, um, doing say, like walking meditation, because it plays a big in the forest tradition. There's a there's a big emphasis placed on. All our monasteries um, will have each dwelling place will have one's own walking meditation path, which you're encouraged to use. Uh, I remember one time uh, Ajahn Chah uh, really fiercely berating the monks and. And uh, uh, really uh, uh, scolding people for not practicing, and his his uh, uh, say his image or his 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 what he was referring to is so you say you know people are you can really tell when people are not practicing and when he can. People are really not diligent in their practice anymore. When you go walk around the dwelling places and and the walking paths are uh, there's no there's no tracks of, of human beings on them. All you can see is dog tracks. <laughs> you can't see any human tracks at all. <laughs> it's, it's just absolutely disgusting. <laughs> uh, so you know when say when the monks are Aren't uh, aren't doing their walking meditation diligently anymore? Then it's like they're, there's uh, this sort of the the, uh, the religion has completely degenerated. <laughs> so I mean, there was a, there was a lot a, a big premium and, and encouragement to incorporate walking meditation, use walking meditation a lot. And it's a very good balance for. Uh, both in terms of posture as well in terms of the mental balance. Uh, the sitting meditation tends to be more focused. I mean, it, te- it lends itself to more concentration. Uh, the walking meditation lends itself a bit more to the reflective quality. And it's also in the mindfulness in action. Uh, training is part of it. So it's very helpful. And then one can ad- adjust it accordingly to one's, one's preference. There's, as I said, during that time when I was, you know, had, had uh, got fed up with sitting meditation because I've been, I've been sort of pushing against pain so much, but uh, I just started doing a whole lot more walking meditation. There's one of the, uh, great Thai forest masters uh, in uh, the northeast of Thailand. He's been dead many years now, but uh, he, uh, his daily routine that he would set for himself uh, would be, he would after the meal in the morning, they eat the meal fairly early in Thailand. And he'd, he'd, after finishing the meal, then he'd do three hours of walking meditation. And then he'd have a bit of a, a rest around midday. And then he'd do three hours of walking meditation. And then he'd have a bath and have some tea. And then he'd do three hours of walking meditation. And then he'd start sitting. Just sort of warm up to the sitting a bit. 
know, so some some teachers and some practitioners have used walking meditation really as the main uh, vehicle for for their for, for practice. Our image or is is usually around you know, sitting meditation. If I were a really good meditator, I'd be able to sit in full lotus and straight all the time. One of the, uh, well, it's very interesting in terms of, I say, the Buddha's teaching. Um, the Buddha didn't really talk about, um, say, what is the, um, the, the, perfect the, the perfect political solution for all the world's problems. Um, he uh, he taught. Uh, say when he was in the company of kings uh, in a sort of an absolute monarchy, uh, then he taught those kings or those monarchs what were their say what were the duties of a of a responsible king. When he was. And India was in very uh, had various states, and many of them were 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 monarchies, and a, f a couple of them were were uh, republics. And in those rep uh, when he lived in the republics, then he taught uh, how to what would be a good functioning republic. Uh, so that he didn't, he wasn't really fixed on a political system, but sort of what are the responsibilities? What are the responsibilities of of a leader? What are the responsibilities of a of a subject? What are the re responsibilities of an of a person involved in the in the in the process? So that um, you know, we've got a uh, for better or worse, we have a republic here, and. Uh, you know, one of the uh, responsibilities is is uh, is in a in a republic is actually being engaged in in the process uh, for it to work, so that for myself living in a uh, a monastery uh, I actually I mean I actually didn't talk about the election tonight because I really don't know what's happening and I've I've uh, um, I act living at a Bayagiri I actually get less news and less knowledge of what's going on in the country and the world than I would in Thailand which is great. <laughs> uh, so, but I really don't know the issues, and and, and also, um, not being an Amer an American, uh, I don't really uh, have uh, much. Uh, uh, I don't have much. Uh, investment in it, so that uh, there isn't the emotional pull uh, to to walk toward it. So I really don't know that much about it. But the uh, you know certainly in terms of of uh, as I say, so, say when the Buddha talked about uh, these these different political systems, then. Uh, Part of a functioning republic is is the, the involvement and in, engage in 
in engaging in the, in the in the political process, you know, to whatever extent uh, is is feasible. So that uh, you know, I think certainly the uh, um, you know, and there's not much there's not much um, uh, how do you say motivation to to be involved in the process. I mean that's one of the problems, is sort of the dis- dysfunctional sort of system that we're inheriting in the, in this age. Is a, uh, there just isn't that much motivation, which is unfortunate. Um, but uh, you know most of you know so I mean it's been several decades now and the you know, the president of the United States is usually elected from uh, a, sphere, uh, a sector within the population. Forty to forty-five percent of the of the population actually votes. Um, you know, so uh, that's uh, uh, you have the the. You know, the, the president of the most powerful country in the world being elected by maybe 20 or 25 percent of the people. Uh, something's not adding up here. Uh, so, so it's, uh, uh, um, I mean, it's scary. So, so that's a, uh, and I don't know, I really don't know what to, you know, what are solutions. Um, certainly, the uh, I think, and like being trying to get involved in local politics is, I think, really useful sometimes. The actual on a community level. It gives some sort of a, a, a foundation of, of at least starting somewhere. Uh, I think that'd be really u- useful uh, because there is such a, uh, a sense, of, a feeling of you know we can't, we don't really have much. My vote doesn't really count, and, and it's not not much. Doesn't have much effect. I think it's quite important to to, uh, you know, to actually motivate ourselves in some way to to, uh, to to be involved because the process doesn't actually work without involvement. Okay, it's about after 9.30. It's appropriate for the evening. Uh, We can uh, pay our homage to the Triple Jam. Oh.
blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.